Hello, my name is Barbara, and this is Neuroscience, Amateur Hour. I hope you guys are doing great. I am doing great. I am actually going on vacation with my best friend starting next week. So I'm hoping to get one episode out this week. If you are listening to me now, that means I have accomplished that. Um, And then I'm hoping to do maybe one episode the following week, if I can record it in advance, and then potentially skip the week after that with regular programming returning in June. But that might all get shuffled, and long story short, it might be a little regular until June. But also, Jesus, time flies. I can't believe it's almost June. (laughs) That's kind of scary. So I don't know about you, but uh, when I'm doing random busy work like mounting or imaging, I've actually started to listen to the Johnny Depp v. Amber Heard trial, just like bits and pieces of the commentary and the testimony. And the muffin moment was kind of funny, but the rest of it is just really, really intense and somewhat hard to listen to. But I was listening specifically to the moment when the forensic psychologist testified that Amber Heard suffers from borderline personality disorder and histrionic personality disorder. And that got me thinking about, you know, various mental health conditions. And I decided that I wanted to learn a little bit more about bipolar disorder specifically. We got here in kind of a roundabout way, but we are here now. And that is how my brain works. And I'm so glad you are here for the ride. So bipolar disorder, or manic depression, is a mental health condition characterized by extreme mood swings that include emotional highs and emotional lows. When someone with this condition undergoes their depressive phase, they may feel sad and hopeless and lose interest in all of their normal activities, and when they undergo their manic phase, they feel euphoric, full of energy, or just extremely irritable. These mood swings manifest themselves in a variety of ways. Depressive episodes can be characterized by insomnia, weight loss, feelings of worthlessness, suicidal ideation, fatigue, etc. Manic episodes are equally intense. They are characterized by being abnormally upbeat, jumpy, or wired. These people feel like they don't need to sleep, they want to talk all the time, their thoughts are racing, and they have this extreme feeling of confidence and euphoria, like they're on top of the world. Manic episodes are also characterized by poor decision-making, like going on insane shopping sprees or going to Vegas and, you know, gambling. And it's not the normal, ha-ha, laugh-it-off, you're-so-spontaneous kind the go-into-$10,000-worth-of-debt kind of shopping spree, the don't-sleep-for-24-hours kind of day, and this, you know, the sleep-with-God-knows-who, with-God-knows-what-diseases, you know, the invest-in-a-Ponzi-scheme kind of manic. It's pretty terrifying. This sudden shift between manic and depressive episodes is the primary symptom of the condition, but it's not the only one. Other symptoms include anxious distress, melancholy, and general psychosis. And it turns out that this condition affects men and women equally, with about 1.3%, I'm sorry, 1-2-3% of the U.S. population diagnosed. Though I have seen some publications with slightly higher numbers. I think one said like 4.6. So 
I'm not 100% sure about that one. Diagnosis for bipolar disorder is generally done by a doctor who may perform a physical examination, conduct an interview, and order some lab tests. And while bipolar disorder cannot be seen on any sort of blood test or body scan, it can help to rule out other illnesses with somewhat similar symptoms, like hyperthyroidism. (laughs) Hyperthyroidism, or an overactive thyroid, is one that produces too much of the hormone thyroxine, which can in turn lead to unintentional weight loss and an irregular heartbeat, which are similar to symptoms experienced during both a depressive and a manic episode. The doctor will ask about the individual's mood swings, behaviors, and lifestyle habits. Questions will also focus on reasoning, memory, ability to express yourself, and the ability to maintain relationships. Sometimes someone with bipolar disorder may not completely understand their condition or understand the impact that it can have on their life. And like a lot of mental health conditions, bipolar disorder shares symptoms with other conditions, including substance use disorder, borderline personality disorder, impulse control disorders, ADHD. So there is quite a bit of like medical detective work that needs to be done to accurately diagnose an individual. And when it comes to causes of why somebody would, you know, get bipolar disorder, there's so much that we don't know. We do know that there appears to be a genetic component to it. If you have a family history of bipolar disorder, you are significantly more likely to develop the condition yourself. Occasional families may exist where a single gene is the underlying cause for the condition, but in a vast majority of cases, It's the interaction of multiple genes with one another or more complex genetic mechanisms such as like dynamic mutations or imprinting that are key. And finding a genetic cause is made even more difficult by the wide variety of symptoms and presentations of the condition, but that doesn't (laughs) discourage researchers. We are a hardy bunch. Some genes have been identified that can potentially play a role Um, And there are a bunch of putative candidates involved in regulating neurotransmitter pathways or those that help to regulate our circadian rhythms, our internal clock of day and night. And obviously, you know, not everybody who has a genetic predisposition to bipolar disorder will, you know, develop the disease in adulthood. So it seems that genetics are not the only cause. But let's find out what's actually happening inside the brain. So back in the 1970s, scientists thought that bipolar disorder was caused by an imbalance between adrenergic neural activity and cholinergic neural activity, proposing that the underlying mechanisms of mania, those emotional highs, reflect an imbalance of high adrenergic activity, whereas depression is a state caused by relatively high cholinergic activity compared to adrenergic activity. Uh, But first, a little background. So cholinergic neurons are those that use the neurotransmitter acetylcholine to send messages. These kinds of neurons are broadly distributed across the brain and are thought to play important roles for regulating a bunch of things, including our circadian rhythms. Adrenergic neurons use the neurotransmitters epinephrine and norepinephrine to send messages. Cholinergic and adrenergic neurons are kind of like two faces of the same coin. Their effects are effectively opposite. 
Adrenergic neurons are responsible for our fight or flight senses. It's that activation of the sympathetic nervous system that raises our heart rate and opens up our blood vessels and gets us ready to, to run, to fight, to, to be active. In contrast, cholinergic neurons are responsible for our rest and digest responses. They are activating our parasympathetic nervous system, which will you know, constrict our neurons, help us to digest food, make you want to be a little couch potato, etc., etc. So the idea was too much adrenergic activity, so too much of that fight-or-flight response, was the cause for episodes of mania, whereas too much rest and digest, or be a sleepy couch potato, was the cause for episodes of depression with someone with bipolar disorder. And largely at the time, these findings were supported by further investigation into the mechanisms underlying depression and mania. However, since the theory was first proposed in 1972, scientists have been hard at work trying to understand more about this disorder with updated techniques and cutting-edge technology. At the time that the adrenergic cholinergic theory was proposed, very little was known about dopamine. But more recently, we have started to understand dopamine's strong contribution to mania. Thus, a new theory was born, the catecholaminergic cholinergic theory that may better describe the potential biological underpinnings of mania. So catecholaminergic neurons are those that use dopamine and norepinephrine as neurotransmitters to send messages. It is still thought that dysfunctional cholinergic neurotransmission, the neurons that are responsible for that rest and digest uh, kind of response, underlie phases of depression. But now we think that it might be these dopamine neurons that are the key to the mania phase. Mania is kind of hard to study in animals. You, you can't exactly ask a rat if they have any racing thoughts or if they feel the sudden urge to go on a $10,000 shopping spree. However, we can visualize hyperactivity, inhibitory deficits, and cognitive dysfunction that partially mirror symptoms in humans. And using this model, researchers first gave do animals dopamine agonists, or activators of dopamine neurons, and they observed mania-like behavior. And then in animals that have the dopamine transporter, lovingly called DAT, D-A-T, um, in animals that had that DAT knocked out genetically, they also observed mania-like symptoms. See, by knocking out DAT, dopamine was no longer being removed from the synaptic cleft, the space between neurons anymore, meaning that it was able to affect the subsequent cells more. AKA, you remove DAT, dopamine is around for longer, and you get manic animals. Another genetic model for bipolar disorder mania was developed by deleting exon 19, which is a part of the gene, in the gene that encodes for circadian locomotor output cycle kaput, or clock protein, which is responsible for regulating circadian rhythms, and it's known to be important for people with bipolar disorder. Once researchers had made these clock 19 knockout mice, they observed that they had disrupted circadian rhythms, and they exhibited several mania-like behaviors, including reduced sleep, hyperactivity, and surprisingly increased reward sensitivity of, to cocaine, of all things. Now this finding shows us that there are probably several mechanisms that can lead to mania-like behaviors in bipolar disorder, 
and that they likely involve both dopamine and the things that control our circadian rhythms. But yes, it's this imbalance between acetylcholine and dopamine slash norepinephrine that's thought to underlie the sudden mood swings that characterize bipolar depression. Now, when it comes to treating bipolar depression, the first thing that people are prescribed are mood stabilizers, which, you know, makes sense. Examples generally include lithium and valproic acid, but I'm going to focus on lithium today because I think it's cool. (laughs) So hilariously enough, despite the fact that lithium has been around for decades, like literally it was one of the first things used to treat mental health conditions, but scientists don't really know how lithium works to stabilize a person's mood. So lithium is the lightest of all metals. It's often consumed in your diet via grains and veggies, and sometimes it can be taken as supplements. Now in your brain, scientists think that lithium induces multiple biochemical and molecular effects on neurotransmitter receptor-mediated signaling, signal transduction cascades, so how signals are sent from one neuron to, you know, down the neuron itself, Um, hormonal and circadian regulation, ion transport, gene expression, so almost everything, actually. (laughs) And it's also thought that lithium has some neuroprotective or neurotrophic effects, aka it may help to protect against neuronal loss. It may also serve to strengthen the connections between brain regions involved in regulating mood, thinking, and behavior. And while we understand some of like the broad strokes of how lithium works in an interest, on an intracellular and molecular level, I am not kidding when I say we really don't know very much. It might be one of those things where it's like its effects are so widespread across the brain that it's nigh on impossible to nail it down. But in addition to mood stabilizers, patients with bipolar disorder will often take anti- antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication coupled with therapy. We are big proponents of therapy over here. But that is a bite-sized look at the neuroscience of bipolar disorder, characterized by an imbalance between specific neuron subtypes that regulate emotional highs, mania, and emotional lows, depression. Bipolar affects a lot of people, so I thought it would be a really important topic to cover this week. I've cited all my relevant sources and papers in the show notes, and you should keep an eye out on Instagram for some cool figures that I think are pertinent. Please rate, review, and subscribe, and if you have any questions, comments, concerns, queries, or complaints, please email me at neurosciencemateurhour at gmail.com or DM me at neurosciencemateurhour on Instagram. I will probably answer. I am very certain that I will answer, but I don't want to promise anything, so chances are high. Think like 99%. This podcast is available on pretty much any platform I can think of, so please recommend it to your friends and loved ones. Also, if you have something you really want to learn about, please contact me, and you'll probably see an episode about it soon. Happy researching, and I hope to see you again. (laughs) 